And now, a dramatic reading of some fearless predictions from the New York Owl's WhatsApp group in the Sunday papers about Steve Bruce's debut as Wednesday manager. First from James Allen. Steve Bruce suffered a rude awakening to life at Sheffield Wednesday as his new team slumped to a 4-0 away defeat at bottom club Ipswich Town. Bruce's reign got off to the worst possible start with a Liam Palmer own goal within three minutes of kickoff. From Paul Owen. Via the Sun, bold for six. Kirby and holiday goer Bruce must regret his extended jolly at the cricket now as the tractor boys plowed over his reggae boy owls. Despite last-minute loan additions, Wednesday looked more like they'd biffed up on West Indian toke that Big Steve brought back from the islands than a prepared championship side. From Damien. Rude awakening. Wednesday then suffered another calamity as Morgan Fox attempted a cross-field ball, but only succeeded in knocking Bruce unconscious. James Allen picks up from there. Remarkably, the incident represents Bruce's 11th career break of his nose. He emerged from reconstructive surgery, however, to discover that worse had befallen his side, with new signing Dominic Iorfa suffering a dislocated ankle in the closing exchanges. Hold the flask, we're playing fast and loose here on the Owls Americast, Sheffield Wednesday Opinion, with an American accent. It's a Canadian accent, because it's a Canadian band that I quoted at the outset. But we are playing fast and loose, because I am your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. I am coming straight from a work event. So I dipped into my refrigerator to see what was chilled, and I found... I feel like I've drank this before on the show, but it's a Folk Tour Hot Cocoa Porter from the Down the Road Beer Company in Boston, Massachusetts. Sorry, Everett, Massachusetts, where the tap room is in the general Boston vicinity. I am drinking it out of the can. It's quite good. It's like a, it's not overly sweet, and it has like the undertone of sourness that you expect in a traditional porter. I think it's like six percent, seven percent, close enough, rounding up. But it's uh, getting the job done because uh, we do have a Nipswich Town game to discuss, and I'm not super excited about it. Perhaps my co-host will be, and we'll start with Patty Jones. Patty, what are you drinking? Good evening, Jeffrey. Um, I am drinking. I think you might have had this recently, or something that sounds similar to it. It's a Bolero Snort, uh, Kashmiri Chai Milk Stout. I have not had that. I had a Saigon scooter selfie, is what you're thinking of, which was a Vietnamese espresso stout. Right. This is a Kashmiri chai milk stout. It's a collaboration with a tea company called Tavalon, and it's called In a China Shop. It is quite nice. I'm not really getting much tea out of it. It's just very much like a normal milk stout, but it's in a very pretty can. I do like Bolero Snout. They've got some really other cans and some really nice brews. I recommend it. Also on the line is James Allen. James, what are you drinking? Um, bloody hell, I feel a bit inadequate, to be honest, Jeff. Um, I, I wish I got something with uh, with a hint of tea in it. Um, I'm, 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 on, I'm on kind of uh, secondment, I guess, tonight. Um, instead of being in New York, I'm in New Jersey. Uh, I'm at a, a training event in the Hyatt Regency Hotel in <laughs> Morristown, New Jersey, um, <sighs> which is about as boring and bland as it sounds. And uh, um, I was literally reduced to whatever I could try and get my hands on via room service, which was two options. It was uh, Cause Light or what I'm actually drinking, which is not cause light, a, uh, a Sunkist Citra IPA from Jersey Girl Brewing Company, which... What? That's fair, quite the dichotomy. Cons- <laughs> yeah. Cons- considering it was room service, it's a New England IPA. It's uh, what they call a silky citrus bomb, and it's, it's actually pretty damn good. <laughs> Jersey so, Girl's um, really good. It's good brewery. Yeah. It's, it's worked out pretty well in my favor. So fortunately, I ordered two of them, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm set fair for the, uh, for the rest of the evening in my um, otherwise barren hotel room. <laughs> So, since James is on assignment, Patty is mostly useless, and I've been at a conference all day, the preview agenda just says, preview the agenda. 
<laughs> do I listen back yeah. home right? I'm, I'm freaking out right now because I'm quite OCD. I need to write things down. Uh, and our agenda is blank for the entire evening. Patty so has made secret get... notes and watched about <laughs> the two and a half minute short highlights, even though he watched the game this weekend at the Football Factory. But we will review the Ipswich game. We will have an interview a little bit different than our uh, normal American Owls fan. We have an Owls fan from Yorkshire that came over and played soccer in America. So we'll chat with him in the second half of the show. Then we will cover Wednesday news. We will preview Reading, which is... That's going to put us all to sleep if we're not already there by that point. We'll cover dispatches from American soccer. Do our other business of note and wrap up the show. But we do start with Steve Bruce's official debut as Wednesday manager, and James, a thrilling 1-0 victory. But Jeff, it actually was. It was like... For all the wrong reasons. You're all being being a little bit sardonic there, but I I thoroughly enjoyed that game of football, right? I mean, it had... um, Everything but everything but the finishing. Okay, everything but the finishing, particularly Fernando Forestieri's finishing. But if you take a step back for a second, right, you know, we we all got it very excited this time last week. I think all of us were sending little kind of pre-Valentine's Day love notes to Steve Bruce because he did such an absolutely stand-up job of making us all feel very good about ourselves and about him and about kind of the future of Sheffield Wednesday, despite just how torrid it's been this year. So we're all a little bit excited going in. He then didn't so much spring a surprise as a sort of play steady state in terms of pretty much picking the same team as we've been playing, you know, no magic debut for the new signings, but he did thrust Fessy back into the lineup, you know, kind of give us a bit of sparkle. And to be fair to Wednesday, we created over the course of the 90 minutes, we created a whole host of chances. I mean, we can't hit a barn door with a banjo to quote the, uh, the cliche, but other than that, it was a, it was a pretty good game of football in a last minute winner to boot. I mean, you know, what more do you want, Jeffrey? This is an American podcast, so the uh, proper aphorism is you can hit the broad side of a barn. <laughs> that is. I I don't. I think I missed the wrong game. I watched the wrong game at least. I can't remember it being that thrilling. Uh, I thought it was pretty boring for most of the game. Yeah, we created some chances, but they were, weren't very close. Most of them. Uh, I just I didn't think I was wasn't impressed. I thought it was kind of an anticlimax after the uh, after Bruce whipped us up into a frenzy. I mean, um, Reach not it, being close on his chance was not was almost more impressive than him actually scoring from that spot. That was a, what a miss. But um, can we talk about Fox's um, cross first? I mean, what a brilliant cross that was from Fox, right? <laughs> Do you think you meant feeling, to feeling the, feeling the heat with the uh, Newcastle left back in town? I mean, he clearly meant to shoot when uh, he just kind of like dribbled off his shin and uh, Reach scooped it over from four yards. Uh, it, awful, awful miss from Reach. It's he's not really happening for him, right? Is it? He can't get a shot on target even from four yards out. Um, but he made up for it later on, as we'll talk about, I'm sure. It was it was a little bit scrappy. Uh, Ipswich did basically fucking nothing for like <laughs> it was almost eight, right. 75, 80 minutes. Uh, honest uh, opinion, Ipswich or Bolton, worst team you've seen this year? Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, God, that is a real, real toss. No, Ipswich. Um, I mean, by a, horrible, Ipswich but, uh, at least uh, created some chances in the second half. No, there could like, be two chances. Think... There were headers, and they were both pretty bad. Chances, yeah, but, but Bolton, I don't think, was ever in any danger of scoring in that match. <laughs> yeah, but you Wednesday always like to give... Uh, whichever Ami Obi, Sammy Ami Obi is the bottom, <laughs> bottom, isn't it? You know, at least two or three sites of goal by letting him barrel down the middle. The only time he's allowed to do that the entire season. At least with Ipswich, the only chances they really had was kind of, they're basically from corners, weren't they? Just kind of a couple of headers that we didn't properly kind of get ourselves aligned on and, uh, and Kieran Westwood dealt with them pretty, uh, pretty handily. Um, I mean, look, I'll come back to your challenge, buddy. All right. Thrilling might be me trying to oversell it, just grasping onto anything that's a bit more interesting than the wooden slats of the uh, the blind that's uh, keeping me from being able to see uh, urban New Jersey out the window. Um, but, you know, at least Wednesday we were an attacking force. You know, we, we did create chances and it was... It wasn't it wasn't the best game of football ever, but relative to some of the games that we've played this season, you know, we were a little bit more vigorous going forward and um you know, once or twice Liam Palmer crossed halfway, what more do you want? <laughs> I'd like him to not go across halfway. <laughs> to stay the, to I guess my off. concern would be that like the offense is still very much dictated by Barry Bannon and Michael Hector long balls. And like 
they're very pretty to look at and they come off more often than you'd think because their their touch is excellent like hector's balls i thought were especially uh impressive in this game but hold on stop jeff can we just replay that quote please what did you just say is this gonna be i don't is this gonna be like a thing where like last two weeks ago where i, I didn't realize that like patty said something uh, <laughs> I didn't intentionally sexual James is like the double entendre police. Yeah. <laughs> so just just for anyone who's you know keeping score, the other week Paddy Paddy just casually dropped in that Adam Reach beat off two players on the touchline, <laughs> and Jeff's just declared that Michael Hector's balls were particularly impressive. This week. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I've been on. saying that for most of the season. <laughs> I know we call him Big Heck, but not for that reason, Jeff. <laughs> You're definitely watching too much carry on films. All right, where were you, my collector? Spraying balls around with his wonderful balls. Um, now, I get what you're saying about the long ball tactics, right? Um, but when we try to tip it up it around the box, it just kind of snuffs out. And yeah, I don't and I mean, really it's, like it's the direct could be. This is a, a New York Owls WhatsApp cliche at this point, but it's like the squad is like desperately calling out for a, if you're going to play that way. The squad is desperately calling out for a Kieran Lee type player, preferably Kieran Lee, who is chronically unavailable at this point. The one, what you're talking about, is a midfielder that runs runs from deep into the box, right? So he and can, can do the and can do the short passing as well, right? And yeah, and that, when I think we, if we call back to like bully, Bully's charge period where Reach scored that goal from running deep into the box. Now, I, t- I told you afterwards, uh, Bullen said that's one of his strengths, and I almost like choked on my beer because I'm sure it is his strength, but we don't play that way. And it's it's gone back to how it was uh, before Bullen, where we are kind of lumping it and hoping it at the moment. Um, so I don't think it's something I'm worried about. I'm sure Bruce will see our strengths and weaknesses and, and fine-tune as we go along throughout the season. Yeah, I mean, that's um, the, the issue is we're still playing the 4-2-3-1 and the 3 don't really get involved. <laughs> But I mean, look. I mean, were we expecting a miracle? You know, in Bruce's first game in it's charge. It's expecting us to do a little better against Ipswich. Uh, well, fair, fair. But then you know, other teams higher in the table, and certainly you've got a much bigger honours board than we have. Have been yeah, down to Ipswich fair enough. And, I'm not uh, saying and, yeah. and not got a it's result. It's a tricky you know, fixture, um, as we know. They are they are not a great side, but they do dig in and defend doggedly, and and so on. They probably do a bit of dogging down in Ipswich as well. So, you know, let's give Bruce's uh, his credit. He'd had one training session. You know, he's not really had a lot of time. You're giving us shit about staff. double entendres. Oh yeah, you see, I'm just just trying to keep up with you two. Um, and then uh, you know he's he slipped in a few new players into the squad, but he's not had time to integrate them. So I'll take it. I'll, as I said, I'll take it. Performance. If we've taken the chances, so let's just take a step back for a second. You know, for all the kind of the umming and ahhing about whether we really like Barry Bannon trying to spray, spray balls from the you know the centre spot or not. Over the course of the game, we created more than enough chances to win that by three or four goals. If we just actually stuck the ball in the back of the net when would have been easier to do so. So if Adam Reach finishes in the first half, if Fernando Forestieri scores and he's clean through on goal once, twice in the second half, um, you know, that this that game's out of sight before you get to the 90th minute. Um, so uh, I, I just, I, I don't worry too much about this one. This, this was one that, you know, Wednesday should have won. We probably should have won much earlier in the game, but we did win. It kind of it gives us a little bit of breathing space. It give, gives Bruce a positive start and it allows us to to start the process of, of thinking about how we do solve these problems, like, you know, what do you do with a, a luxury that very bad and that maybe isn't properly suited to our playing stuff? What do we make of Fernando Forestieri at this point, Patty? Um, he had a lot of promise, right? So I think he was a little bit rusty. Um, what we did see was the kind of uh, typical kind of feistiness, the kind of uh, always available, uh, making runs, getting in good positions, uh, shooting on sight. That's the forest area we know and love. What was missing was the the clinicalness. Um, and that's, I would assume, down to kind of like match, match, match rustiness, I suppose. Um, he got through, uh, I think the best chance for me was when he was kind of like, he broke the offside trap and it was kind of like a half volley, which the keeper, oh, she went to like, like three, three yards over the, the bar in the end of it, actually. Uh, then I think like his last chance of the three good ones he had was he was 
on the wide left about 12 yards out and he just scuffed a left footer shot when he sh- probably should have passed it square. Um, he just wasn't firing, um, but I thought it was promising. Uh, I loved the comments on Bruce this week about Forestieri. Uh, it's so nice hearing a manager recognise his like his good players, but also the fact that he might like just recognise his personality. He says he's got the devil in him, right? He said, uh, I-, I like Forestieri, he's got a bit of devil in him. Uh, but I'm looking forward to putting a smile on his face, whatever that may be. You know, he wants to put a smile back on his face. So he, he clearly knows he's not completely happy for Ostieri, but he also knows he's a prize asset. Uh, and I think Bruce is the kind of manager which will um, bring the best out in a player like that. And yeah, the most interesting comment out of that for me is like, you know, he's a. What are the usual adjectives we use here for European players? Mercurial? Is that a good one? Uh, but the most interesting part of it for me was basically said, yeah, I think he should essentially play as a number 10. Like, I don't think he's a winger. I don't think he's, you know, more of a, of a central midfielder. I think he's more of an attacking player. And if you look at, like, sort of Wednesday's best football in recent memory with him in the squad, it was him playing off whether it was Hooper or Newhue or Fletcher, sort of in that just off the striker role and just let him attack and let him be a sort of a terrier defending from the front and it just gives them a different look that they have not had recently like you can like when you're playing the 4-2-3-1 you can like yeah obviously Jao and and Reach and Matthias they'll track back and defend but Forcieri is the kind of guy that can change a game I think I've referred to him on the podcast before as a match winner and he would have been at Ipswich if he was I think sort of fully fully match fit and match ready and a little less rusty like he could have easily had that game done and dusted because he just brings a look that no other player in the squad offers you. I think that's fair, Jeff. And I, what, what, what I think is probably even more fair is the fact that Bruce has come out straight away and said that that's, that's kind of the way he sees for scary, right? I mean, look, he, know, he knows the player. He's, you know, he's faced him um, as an opponent enough times to know what he can do and, and kind of what he's, what he's capable of when he's on form. So, you know, first things first, Kudos to him for kind of knowing the division and uh, and remembering a player who's caused him trouble in the past, but but that's kind of refreshing, I think. You know exactly the way he said it. I mean, you go back to that that first season where we pushed the playoffs under Carlos, and he was that free radical, and kind of we, you know, we let him do his thing. It it worked for us, didn't it? it worked for a period of time. It was only when we tried to pin him down that we kind of we got got into problems. Um, and what I liked was the second thing that Bruce said was, you know, not only that's that's his best position, but he said, but I know it's gonna he's gonna be a pain for us. You know, he's kind of he's kind of accepting that you know that there's a a fiery temperament in there, and so you know the the ultimate question is is that pain tolerable enough? Is the difficulty he creates tolerable enough that you know we get the spoils because we get him beyond rusty and he, he starts firing again and, and finishing those chances? In which case, it's it's a luxury we can afford because we're climbing up the table. Well, you know, only time is going to see, um, and and if he has a good run into the season, then maybe. He solves the FFP problem on his own with a you know a big sale in May. We'll see. And I think we've seen that on his day, he's arguably the best player in the championship in any given year that he's been here. It's just you want to see more of the... <laughs> you need a manager or a system or a setup that gets more good days than bad days, basically. And that's like... That's not ideal... But if you're sort of accepting that the, the, the personality is also part and parcel to the player, you just have to roll with it because the end product is what you actually need. Like he's, again, he can disappear. He can go over a little bit too easy. He has probably a reputation with the refs in this league at this point, but he can also make something out of completely nothing and yeah maybe it didn't happen against Ipswich but maybe it happens in a tougher game later in the season where you're fighting and scrapping and just holding on for nil-nil and then he pops up and just pops one from 25 yards yeah and it's, it certainly will it'll, it'll happen for him if he keeps fit uh it's, it's too good for him not to uh and that's what uh Bruce is saying I think I think uh put his arm around him and uh let's see where we can go with this and the best thing about what Bruce said, I forgot the best thing he said, he, he said he's not a left-sided player. He's someone that should be playing off as a, off the number nine as a number 10 role. 
and, and as a kind of free role. And we always went, yes, thank God. It's so nice, isn't it? To like, hear him say these things. <laughs> like, yes, we know. I've been saying it for four years. Uh, it's just, he's been in the club a week and it's just like, you don't have to decode what he's saying. He just says that it, what he says makes sense. It is brilliant. I love him. Speaking of popping up with a goal when needed, once again, after 89 minutes of suspect finishing, here's Lucas Zhao, James. Look, it, it was clinical, wasn't it? There was nothing in doubt when he uh, when he strode to side put the ball in from eight yards um, in the ninety first minute uh, after uh, after a hopeful uh, long ball from Michael Hector that uh, you were just saying you didn't particularly like him to play, Jeff. Uh, no, it was um, it was kind of curious, wasn't it? Because it everything had not quite come together that uh, until that point, and you know, in the last vestiges of the game, as as Adam reached charge forward, you kind of thought, oh God, this one's going to go the same way, isn't it? It's all going to just not quite work at the end. But it was a clinical finish and, you know, never looked in doubt once he, uh, once he pulled the trigger. But I think, you know, that, that goal is all down to that, that ball from Hector, which is beautifully weighted to reach, but then reach his touch and then he's drive to get past the defender and, and you know, just, just tuck inside on his left foot the way he did. Um, you know, it was the simplest to finishes for Zhao and, uh, and there you go. You know, game one, apart from the five minutes of injury time, whatever it was that we had to <laughs> suffer through after that. We think of, so we've talked about Forest Sirius, sort of the number 10, but, you know, Zhao's also played out on the on the left and sort of the, in the three in front of the front striker, either Fletcher or Newhue. He looks very comfortable in that number nine role, though, Patty. Yeah, and I think I said that before on this podcast. I, he, he's not a winger, Joao. He's, he's not um, consistent enough with the ball at his feet uh, at passing it to the players. He's a finisher. He likes the ball in front of him, and he likes to shoot. Uh, you can't put someone like that on the left wing like he has done with uh, with Lukai. And as we know, Brucey, whack him in instead of Fletcher. Don't put him on the wing. like uh, you, you could have brought him on for Boyd like Lukai did quite a lot. Um, but no, straight at number nine, what do you know? Pays off. Absolute stroker genius. Um, I think I think he gets us, and I think uh, Joao and Forestier up front could be a good uh, top two, if I'm honest with you. Uh, Fletcher is a good option too, of course. Keep those three central, and I think we'll be fine in the end. And here we are. It's the dawn of February. Game in hand, nine points off, sixth place. James, your thoughts? Stop it, Jeff. Stop it. All right. Do you um, want me to move on to yeah, the next no, no, segment? No. I, look, I'm like everyone else. I looked at the table after the game mm. and I thought, oh, you know. Yeah. And then, I, then, then reality kicked back in and I remembered everything I've been saying since mm. August last year, which is, yeah, this is a team in transition. It's a mid table squad. I think we'll finish yeah. mid table. We may be lucky. We may finish 14th instead of 16th. Um, or maybe even, you know, dare I say it, 13th. But look, for as long as the gap is nine points and there's games left in the season then you can but dream um this the way we're playing and the, the way we're converting chances you know we're not putting any teams to the sword yet so come back to me when we've won you know five or six games by three or four goals and then we'll uh, we'll talk about whether or not we're uh, we're on the edge of the playoffs the one glimmer the one glimmer of hope i have right is that um this again is another bad championship league so i was speaking to the middlesbrough fans in new york um on saturday and they're always moaning. They're always like, oh, we're shite. Oh, we've been shite for so long. Like, oh, crap. And, like, they're still fifth. Like, how are you still fifth if you're so bad? Oh, because the rest of the league's crap. I was like, have you, I looked at the form table. They're one of the most formed uh, teams in the league. And they do not rate their side. They think they're a terrible side at the moment with Tony Poulos in charge. And they're still fifth. That's because people below them are just as bad. So all it takes, as we said umpteen times, is that a good run. And... Hull have come from like being almost in relegation zone to tenth place recently from a good run, and people but then like Aston Villa and Birmingham are not good teams. So it's, as long as there's a glimmer, as long as we're still in the kind of uh, nine point region, there's always hope. But um, it's a glimmer of hope, not a not a complete ladder up to the Premier League. I mean, I just want to be clear: if you if you really if you want to dream, and I don't uh, I don't begrudge you your dreams. Just keep in mind, we're chasing Derby and Bristol City. Yeah, but 
So this is the problem, isn't it? I mean, Paddy is spot on with his analysis, which is that this is a shit year in the championship again. And it's the second year in a row where if Wednesday had been at the races, then we should be absolutely the sharp edge of this division. But we weren't, we aren't, and so we're not. So the, the reason why we're, we're kind of, you know, we're pouring cold water on it is, you know, don't expect this misfiring squad to suddenly start firing in the way that it needs to to get out, out of the league. But... Um, God, Lord, if, if, if it does, then there's still a fighting chance because th- there's a lot of average teams above us, right? It's not just like um, it's not just nine points from sixth place. It's like we are five points from eighth place and with a game in hand. So if we're not game in hand, we are two points from, from eighth place. Just We have been awful this year. Just <laughs> awful. And we are two points from eighth place. there would be no math. <laughs> But it's just that's just how bad this league is. We have been so bad this this year, and we we're in. If we don't get in hand, we're two points from eighth place. It's just absolutely crazy. We do have Reading and Millwall coming up. That's two segments away, and in the next segment, we'll do a little twist on how I became a Wednesdayite because we're taking a Wednesdayite from Yorkshire and finding out how he became an American soccer player. So normally, when we move into this segment on the Owls Americast, the first question is how you became a Wednesdayite. But since our guest this week is from Yorkshire, you can probably guess how he became a Wednesdayite. The poor sucker was born into it. So instead, we're going to take a different tact with our guest, Danny Eberall. Danny, how did you end up playing soccer in the U.S.? Um, I had um, a few scholarship offers from uh, universities across America when I was 19. And so um, I moved to Virginia at 19 years old and I never really left since. So how does that happen, Danny? Explain it to some of our people back home. So you were a 16-year-old, you said you were, when you went to America? How old were you? No, at 19. So I left, I was, I'm old school, so I left school at 16. And now I think they leave school at 18 now in England, don't they? Yeah. But um, with your grades at 18, um, GCSEs then, and I don't know if, I don't know what it is now, but you, you're eligible to get into American University. So, and an American University, there's no cap on foreign players or anything like that. And you can play for that university and they will pay for your education. That seems like a so, bit of a sweet deal. Why isn't everyone doing it? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. I, I like. I don't know. It's believe it or not. Like they, there is a lot of English over here. Like for example, on my team, there was the the only American that was on my team um, was Gatorade Player of the Year under eighteen, and he couldn't even get in the the squad because the the team was full of like Brazilians, Africans, um, like you name it, French, German. Um, so everybody's all different. Everyone's yeah. going to America to get a free education who can play a bit of football. Yeah, yeah. So what happens then? So you obviously get kind of a student visa, I assume. So how long are you? How long yeah. was your education? Um, well, my education is four years, but if you play it right, um, you can get your master's degree paid for as well because you have four years where you can play, like four seasons, but that can be over five years. So if you get injured one season, um, you could be injured for one season and then. So you could get your masters paid for it as well. That sounds pretty sweet. I'm thinking yeah. I should have done the same thing 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> if it was any good football, it was crap at football. So that was a challenge for me. Um, <laughs> so you end up in Virginia. Uh, whereabouts in Virginia? Whereabouts in Virginia were you? I was like right on the border. I was basically um, in North Carolina, just outside Greensboro in North Carolina. All right, that's cool. And yeah. so what's so this university kind of. Uh, football is there like a league do you play other universities how's the whole setup work yeah um, like I mean it's crazy the budgets are crazy like you'll fly to games um, it's it's like being a professional footballer but you'll you fly to, to games as well yeah Imagine that, it's crazy. that I mean, school, high school in um, England you get flown to um, the Jersey to play their Jersey school <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's crazy like um, so and it's all about who can get the best deal as well. So obviously the best players get everything paid for the school in everything paid for. And then players, what are like basically squad players, fringe players might get 50% of their education paid for. 
So it's all about getting the best deal as well than playing for the best team. Because then that's how you get drafted. It's so, through the college. Do you so like with, with American footballers? Yeah. So, so wait, drafted to where? MLS. All right. So the, it does lead, does lead up to MLS. That's, that's what I was going to ask you next. So like the grassroots in, in America, uh, I know how the kind of college system works in the NFL because it's very well publicized, right? So mm-hmm. like, if you're good at college football, then you become a fucking millionaire, essentially. So Absolutely. obviously the money isn't exactly there for MLS. So you're saying that you play in your university team for four years and then you get drafted at the end of it, right? Yes. All right, cool. Well, how many people succeed in that draft after the university? Well, well, it's, 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 it's very skewed because um, of the MLS can only have a certain amount of foreign players. I think it's 180 foreign players for the whole of MLS. So when you start divvying that up, it's not a lot of foreign players per team. It averages out about five or six per team. And then you can only have three in your starting lineup unless they're a designated MLS player like, for example, Steven Gerrard or something. So um, normally in the draft... Um, Teams don't want to touch anybody else but American players because they don't want to use up one of their international roster spots. That's interesting. So when did you find that out? At what point do you think, oh, you're just too good, you you would get picked anyway? Uh, When did you kind of like start realising that your odds were against you because you weren't born in the US? Um, Well, I hold hold a couple of... um, uh, goal-scoring records across a couple of universities, and um, so I was looking for my next my next step once I was graduating, and um, and then once I started talking to a few coaches and and things like that, I played in the professional development league. I played for like, in Detroit and West Texas, and um, it was just knowing that it's kind of there's so many uh, roadblocks ahead. So I was actually going to leave America. But um, I got injured, so and then I ended up staying here. So, how old were you when you got injured, and what did you, what happened to you? What was uh, your injury? Oh my gosh! So it actually happened my first my first year while I were over here. So I was playing I was playing tennis, believe it or not, and oh, you know, yeah, I know. You know when you plant your foot down uh, to take the shot? Yep. I planted it on the tennis ball. Oh. So my ankle just like went like nearly 180 degrees and it's all about getting the best deals and I was playing for not a very good team in Virginia at the time but I had good stats so I was getting my transfer so I moved to Ohio and I moved to Ohio I went up for the visit because they fly you up for a visit and things like that and um, I was in a I was in a boot and I just took the boot off for my visit and I signed for them uh, so they didn't know that I was injured. <laughs> well, there's no fitness test. <laughs> no fitness test. No. This, you have to just have this a is a true. And... This is a true Yorkshireman right here. <laughs> <laughs> so you, bl- you blagged it into university, so I'll... absolutely blagged it. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, that turned out all right because you started to get some scoring goals, some some score records. You say how many goals yeah. are you scoring a season? So my my the record what I hold I got because you put eight seasons, eighteen games, and I got twenty goals. Nice, mate. Yeah, so uh, you're all right. So you got you sat off with an injury. Um, obviously, you like, that healed. Was it a reoccurrence of that injury? No, it actually never healed. So I played two seasons, and so I broke a record in Ohio, and then I got my third transfer um, to Mississippi because this team was ranked fourth best in the country. But each so, time you're getting transferred to a different school and you're having to yeah. start like a different kind of a set of teachers that's educating the rest of stuff too. Yeah, so only a certain amount of um like of your classes will transfer and things like that. So it was yeah, so then um I was in Mississippi and um so I played for a couple of years with no ligaments in my ankle, which I just took pain meds and took injections and stuff like that so to get me through season. Because season's actually only three months long. It's a lot of games like um, in a short space of time. For example, you might play Saturday and Sunday. It's Barmer. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds nuts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is uh, all of the Wild West of, um, of uh, grassroots football in the US. So um, so what happened at the end then? What's, uh, like, how many years into it? You, say you did two or three years? Yeah, so then I played in, I had a short stint in PDL, I played West Texas Soccer's, that was crazy, 
Like, uh, part of playing for that team, you get free entry to, like, the nightclubs or we played in a 30,000-seater stadium. We lost one game and this Mexican at front threw his nachos over our coach's head. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, that was crazy. And then, so, and then I transferred to Detroit, uh, but I injured my hip flexor then. And then I played, I went back home to England and my ankle just kept on giving way from when I had... Um, when I first got injured, so I had ankle reconstruction surgery and just didn't come back the same player. So you just got to be honest for yourself. Oh, mate. Um, so what happened after that? So when you quit the uh, the game, you still hung around and finished your university degree? How that work? Yeah. So I'd already finished it and I'd signed a, pre, I signed a pre-contract agreement with a team in Boston. I knew that I was done, but I thought if they signed me, I can just like go down it for pre-season and then I'll just take a coaching job with them. But they uh, they bombed me off to sign this uh, a player that got released by Barcelona because <laughs> the the, uh, the international things. And in America, it's very different to England. You know, when you sign the one-year, two-year deals in America, it's literally week by week. Oh really? Wow. That was so. that's similar to what um what thing you were saying when we had him on the podcast um who oh, yeah. We had Harks the podcast a few months ago. He was saying that um, he had a few, when he went to Albany, this is like in the eighties. This is there was like like a, an English like striker playing there for a few weeks too because he signed a few week contract, and it's like all these people were just like playing for like a month in Albany to get fit and like playing a few games like ex- exhibition games too. So it's weird that you can sign contracts like that around uh, around uh, the US soccer scene. Yeah. So so where did you end up? Where was the where were you left once you were injured? Oh, so I got really lucky. I like, like, so my grades were horrendous because, <laughs> I, because I wasn't ever gonna, I wasn't really bothered about school. And then um, I started coaching a little bit in Mississippi. And one of the kids that I coached, his mom was dean of the business school at um, University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, so she basically got me in. Like, so I went to business school and got my master's degree in business. Very nice, very nice. So, uh, so, so, would you rec- so would you recommend this? Uh, this to me sounds like a bit of a no-brainer. If you're like a <laughs> 17-year-old kid in England at the moment and you're thinking, oh, what should I do in my life? I'm pretty good at football. Uh, would you recommend this uh, moving to the US and doing education over here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one of the they put in a lot of uh, a lot of like uh, um, stipulations on it now. Like, you can't play if you earn money. If you've ever earned money, you can't play at university level, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so it's very hard, but there's ways around it, and I would 100% recommend it. I mean, what what I'd rather like Newport County's just done that running the FA Cup, but like 99 times out of 100 days of the year, you'd rather be you'd rather be in America uh, doing that than playing for somebody like Newport County. <laughs> just a different route isn't it? it's a totally different route and obviously if you didn't get injured you could end up in, in MLS you could end up back in Europe if you wanted to it's it's uh, if you get an education as well it's like a, it's like a great deal yeah and so, the education it's, it's pretty it's pretty easy as well the American University compared to uh, England I think that's interesting as well uh, so do you think so we've talked a lot about MLS on this, on this podcast and uh, a little bit about the um, the soccer federation here um, do you think they're helping grassroots um, by the way they're modelling this kind of draft system and stuff? It seems like only kind of like the, the cream of the crop get through the whole system, and then after that you kind of left on a big heap uh, with not much else to play for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's 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 awkward really because once you finish college, you're 21, 22, and so most of the pros have already got like at least like a hundred. A hundred, um, like Marcus Rashford, he's got. I know he's different because he's obviously quality, but he's got 150 appearances or something like that already at 21. And yeah. so you'll get trying to get these boys at 22 when they've just played university, and then try and get them to play pro. It's very difficult. Uh, do you have, do you get scouts from like MLS clubs going down to the university and picking you off before you get to the draft? I assume. No, the the MLS is uh, they're not. They're, it's not like England. They don't have the same budgets as. Uh, or scouting systems or anything like that. So the only time you'd get picked up in MLS club is at the draft. You wouldn't get picked up before that. Um, no, 
No, very unlikely. I mean, the MLS clubs like compared to like a Premier League club are pretty much like dog and duck in terms of like recruiting talent and things like that. Oh wow! So what about so obviously um, they have their own academies too, though, right? So like Rebels will have their own academy and stuff. Um, is that just a completely different route into the game compared to the uh, the college route and the university route? Yeah, it it. It is, yeah, but they have um, abs- they have like horrendous like success rates from it right. because um, the the players get advised from families to get their education first and things like that, and then the Americans can't leave America until they're eighteen, and so they get brought up into the MLS system. It's just it's just a bit of a mess at the minute, to be honest with you. There's no kind of direction on how to help grassroots. I think if uh, we had Mr. Owen on the line, uh, our friend Paul is uh, very opinionated about this whole thing. So, uh, <laughs> uh, right. Uh, so, uh, obviously, you're a Wednesday fan. Uh, whereabouts in Yorkshire are you from? Ellsborough. Oh, you're from Ellsborough too? I was actually um, uh, at the New York Owls meetup on Saturday, and the guy from uh, Hillsborough was there too. Um, how, so what, are your, what are your thoughts on this season so far? What are your expectations for the rest of the season? Um, it's different, really, because. Obviously, we've had Carver Haaland, uh, Josh Lukai as last managers. And to be honest with you, with Carver Hall, like you, you tuned in, you were interested, you didn't know what was going to happen. But this last season with uh, Josh Lukai, I think the worst thing you can do to a supporter is make them disinterested. And I think it, it's, it made me disinterested while he was on. So I've kind of zoned back in. And I think that I think that we're just going to give a lot of love to Steve Bruce, to be honest with you. And just get him pumped up for this season, and just see what see what can happen this season. But the season's basically right off its building for next season. So you're totally behind Bruce, and think good good signing. Yeah, I think he's a rough diamond. I think that with with Carver Halland, look, I uh, you never knew what you were going to get the end game. You know what Steve Bruce is capable of doing in terms of promotion. I just think he looks like a bit like a beaten man at the minute with um, everything that's gone on in his life, and I think he got treated like knowing that what's gone on in his life, and then so then knowing how Aston Villa treated him, it's pretty horrendous. So I think that it just I think he needs like an arm round, not an arm round him, but like the supporters really behind him. And I think if if the supporters do do that and have a positive attitude, I think they'll reap the benefits. And I think he's, I think you're right, and I think um, it's come to the right place for us with you. I know that Wednesday fans are known for the uh, hospitality sometimes if things aren't going their way, but I think the way we started this um, this uh, appointment and uh, him at, being at the club is totally unique, right? So he, there's no nothing's ever no one's ever done before where they turn up a month after they've been announced, uh, and for the reasons they have, I, I didn't see any Wednesdayites complaining that he had. Didn't start till February the first. Everyone understood his situation. Everyone knew what he'd done for the last year or so. Everyone knows his um, past results. So I think you're right. I think we will give him that support, and hopefully, I think he'll see that. And I think he'll. Um, he's already looking like to me like he, he's up for it. Like he, in those interviews he's doing with all the press at the moment, he, he sounds proper passionate. He sounds. He's head screwed on. He knows exactly what our problems are. With like we could be in the in the club. He knows exactly what our problems are. He's signed three players. that have got pace. Been screaming out for that for the last four years. Ugh. So I, I, think, I think you're totally right. I think um, I think he's the right man for the job. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I think with with Steve Bruce as well, you don't have to decipher what he's saying. I think that was the hard part <laughs> with Carver Halland, Lukai. You had to like it was like it was like reading poetry. You had to look for you had to look for the hidden messages within everything. Yeah, I think Lukai's poetry is like um, third grade poetry. You know, <laughs> <laughs> barely reading right. Uh, Carvajal was a bit more um, Cantonar-esque um, poetry-wise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in the summer, let's look a little bit further forward, shall we? Uh, what do you think we should be looking for in the transfer market in summer, assuming we can spend some money? I think what we've been crying out for in the last few years is um, just somebody like that Modi Army. Just somebody, somebody with um, pace, power and strength in middle at park. I think if we'd have had Modi Army... That year, uh, obviously, the beat is in the playoff final with Hull. But that year where we lost to Huddersfield in the playoffs, I feel like if we just had that presence at Middle at Park, it would have carried us over the line. But that's what I think that we need. And I'm not, I'm not overly convinced with um, Tom Lees as a leader. I think he's a good number two centre-back. Like, he was really good with Leuven's. But as soon as Leuven's legs went, I think... 
Tom Lee's got really exposed. And I think, to be honest with you, our back, our back line needs to be like absolutely chopped and changed. Hopefully this this Ayof, is it Ayofa, how you pronounce it, from Wolves? Yeah, Ayofa, yeah. Has got potential, but I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Liam Palmer in the slightest. Um, I'm not so. Bit, I'm, I like Westwood um, a lot. Um, it's interesting actually. One of my best mates from over here, um, he was doing his A license, and he had um, a sit-down talk with um, Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill because he's at Bristol City, and they've got some Irish kid coming through. And they hate. He said that Roy Keane spoke for ten minutes. How much he hated Westwood. <laughs> so, saying that it was a bad egg. But I think that Westwood's. I think I just. I just don't know. I like. I feel sorry for Dawson because he made the scapegoat. But I think. I think Stevie Wonder could see that we needed Westwood in goal. Yeah, but like I say, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, and that's not the only mm. person to say that Westwood's been a bad egg. But I mean, from what the fans have seen, uh, as soon as he's been back in the squad. He's uh, been fantastic and he's definitely solidified that back four. He's silenced me. I, I said uh, on Twitter, very <laughs> got loads of stick for this, that uh, we're not going to shoot up the table once we put Westwood and uh, Hutchinson in, in the squad. There's a lot more <laughs> problems we've got. And immediately, like, like loads of clean sheets and <laughs> we're playing out of this game. <laughs> so I understand his qualities. Uh, I, there is definitely still doubts around his personality and uh, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of smoke there, I think. That, uh, I think there's some fire there also. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame though, because I think he, he seems like a nice guy to everybody else out on the outside, at least. I mean, Wednesday, yeah. God knows, has never had you know troubled personalities have success at that club. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got through that. We got through um, Decanio and other people. I'm still, all, I'm still heartbroken from Decanio. I'm still <laughs> heartbroken from it. All right, mate. Well, uh, we've we have prattled on. It's about 25 minutes gone through already. So uh, we appreciate your time, uh, Danny. We've got to uh, get on to the rest of the podcast now. But um, thanks for uh, sharing your story. Uh, thanks for the podcast. And maybe we'll speak, speak soon. No problem. Cheers, boys. All the best, mate. All the best. Bye. It's now time for Wednesday news. Because we podcasted late... Last week, there's a, a limited amount of Wednesday news. But we'll start with the usual injury update. And uh, Josh Anoma out for three to four weeks, Patty. Yeah, it was announced uh, recently that uh, apparently twinged his same injury he had earlier in the season. I think he's got a hamstring injury. Um, so Bruce is saying that he's going to rest him for three to four weeks. For me... I mean, my, my, the jury's still out for me on Josh Noma. I've seen him uh, in the flesh when I went back home at Christmas, uh, and I didn't think he looked bothered. He's got the kind of attitude of a lone player, which to me says that he's not really wanting to be here. But he's undoubtedly got talent, and it occasionally shines through. I just don't think he's got the drive to be the championship player. I thought in the Ipswich game, he was like trying to do a little bit too much sort of when he came on. Just like one move too many, tried to nutmeg through two players and hasn't really ever completely fit in the system, especially playing with Bannon. I thought when he came in for Bannon during Bannon's uh, suspension, most recently, he actually looked pretty good in that role. But with Bannon, you know, in the squad and playing off him, he never quite kind of found his fit. He, do- he hasn't really got the pace of the championship yet, I don't think. He, he dawdles a little bit too much. Like yeah, a lot it's like of time on the ball there. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, he just doesn't release it fast enough for my liking. And like I say, he tries to do too much. I think he's trying to um, show his worth, but actually he ends up just giving the ball away too much. Anyway, he's injured, so that's not bad mouth. <laughs> a couple of big uh, anniversaries of sorts of the weekend. Uh, notable... Uh appearances uh liam palmer had his 200th appearance in a wednesday shirt and kieran westwood had his 150th james yeah i mean look uh, kudos to both players for turning out in as many games as they have um that's wonderful achievement etc etc particularly in palm coming through as a young lad but uh, last week we were talking about just how big the gap is between the championship and the premier league and the fact that we've been out of the premier league for 20 years the fact that liam palmer has paid 200 Blaming games for Sheffield Wednesday. In the so series. I'm gonna, I'm going to, for that long. I am going to be a bit of a devil's advocate. I'm going to take the Evan Skeletor role here. <laughs> 
when it comes to Liam Palmer. So uh, a couple of years ago, I sent a voicemail to the Wednesday week that somehow Lord H lost <laughs> and didn't actually put on the on the podcast. Shocking, I know. But I actually made a fairly impassioned defense of uh, at the time Liam Palmer and Eddie Newhue. Longtime listener of the show, be no stranger to my impassioned defense of Eddie Newhue. But I do want to make a point about sort of Liam Palmer in the Premier League as James framed it. I am counting down the minutes, hours, days, months, years, decades at this point until Wednesday gets back into the Premier League. It will be glorious. My concern... WRT, Liam Palmer, and and players of that ilk. Because I think what kind of club do we want to be once we get there? You know, Liam Palmer obviously grew up a Wednesday fan, came through the youth system, has played a role in the squad for a number of years now, and I think that is that is worthy of praise. Um, is he anything more than an average squad player in the championship maybe not and that's a you know conversation we've had on the show a lot but i think sort of like you can't have we're all wednesday aren't we as sort of an ethos and also in the next breath slag off liam palmer for what he's done like i'm glad you added the last bit there jeff because i was wondering where the devil's advocate bit was there because it sounded like there was a very long way of agreeing with me um (laughs) Uh, yeah, look, all right, let's be, let's all be serious for a second. Any of us would give our right arm to be good enough to play professional football, and we give our left arm to be able to play professional football for Sheffield Wednesday. So, you know, Liam Palmer has, has achieved that, and not only achieved it for one game, he's achieved it for 200 games, and he deserves enormous credit for that, and I am not knocking his achievement. All I'm saying is the fact that Wednesday have been at a level where a player of Liam Palmer's calibre has been able to accumulate 200 games tells you we've been at a level and playing players of a level for too long. So, you know, that's the circumstances, that's history, it's done. All I'm really leaning into is I want to congratulate him, but we need to move beyond Liam Palmer and we need to move toward players, you know, hopefully of the ilk that we're we're starting to bring in now through the loan system. And we're going to have to make some hard choices so we can sustain that in order to reach that level. There's just a, I think there's a balance. There's a danger of being, like, I think, particularly mercenary once you get into the, into that sort of like Premier League bottom half of the table, stay uppy mindset. So you're saying that um, Palmer can do a job in the Premier League? <laughs> exactly what I'm saying, Patty. We can <laughs> just trying to summarize for our listeners back home. <laughs> yep. What I'm saying is, when we get promoted, first name on the team sheet is Liam Palmer. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Batonosdorf says, Palmer for Premier League. We do I have think a... if we drop Domino, I reckon he might give mm. you a guest uh, guest writing slot to put that in the paper before the weekend. Are you up for it, Jeff? I mean, it would be... <laughs> I was going to say, uh, it would not certainly lower the quality of commentary in the Sheffield <laughs> Stars, so... <laughs> It'd be uh, like the had a few of beers, so, for America. Yeah, Paddy, yeah. Do you, when, when you were growing up, did, oh, sorry, this is going to sound awfully middle class. Um, did you ever listen to the uh, the item on Radio 4 in which um, Alistair Cook wrote a letter from America? I think I did, yeah. yeah I think uh, I did. There, there you go. So, so there used to be this old British gent who would occasionally pen a missive from, uh, I think it was like Washington, but he would you know, write about life in America, Jeff, you know, for the... The folks back in uh, in Blighty, so they could understand how uh, how a, a superior country was advancing. This would be the inverse. It'd be like an American writing a letter to the people of Sheffield about Sheffield Wednesday. This is a, this should be a thing. I think, we should, <laughs> I think we should make this happen. Are we doing this like literally every week in audio format? Yeah, but let's go back to the good old times. You know? <laughs> in in the post Brexit world, Paddy, where nobody has a telephone uh, or access to the internet, they'll they'll rely on things <laughs> like printed newspapers. <laughs> okay. Jeff, get your quill out. We'll get right to the star. Yeah, we'll send a carrier pigeon across the Atlantic. <laughs> I have a fountain pen somewhere, if that helps. But we'll go now to dispatches from American soccer. And again, I'm sad Evan is not here because this was uh, 
curated especially for him. Uh, there is a breaking new report from Cincinnati, Ohio, that says that crowd noise from FC Cincinnati Stadium will interfere with rehearsals and performances in the music hall there and will be readily audible inside Springer Auditorium, which is the home of the Cincinnati Ballet, the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, the Cincinnati Opera, the May Festival Chorus, and the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra. Why are they having concerts at like same time as like matches? It's it's Friday and Saturday night usually is the Friday Saturday night Sunday matinee is the general uh, schedule for those <laughs> sort of things, Patty. Which do tend to conflict with uh, MLS matches, I think, as you're well aware. <laughs> of course, sorry. Probably uh, should have been discovered in like the you know the general you know environmental uh, studies around the new MLS stadium they're building. Aren't concert halls supposed to be like soundproofed and stuff and pretty good acoustically? Sure. Is that the whole thing about being concert hall? But it, it, as I think you're well aware from your uh, your podcast with Evan a few weeks ago, it's like those those MLS chants get a uh, they get pretty rowdy. Oh yeah, all three hundred <laughs> people singing the same thing monotone over and over again. I can I can see why it's going to annoy some uh, concert hall goes. Uh, <laughs> this is genuine research. Yeah, yeah. They did. Oh, uh, they didn't do the environmental study ahead of time, but yeah, it's now a. Uh, here's the quote from the uh, president for communications for uh, for CAA, which I assume is the. Uh, I'm guessing probably the union that represents the musicians there, but I don't know. We all have an obligation to preserve the successful ongoing operation of Music Hall, and to protect it as a critical community asset, especially given the recent. $143 million investment in its revitalization, said Van Ackerman, Vice President for Communications for CAA. We look forward to the completed report and to working cooperatively with FC Cincinnati to find avenues of potential solutions to these sound intrusion issues. I'm sure if everyone was here, he would say that there's no worry here because Cincinnati don't make any noise. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll fill in for him here. I'll fill in for the gag that you're hoping to get. We don't need Evan Skilleter for the Reading and Millwall previews, though, do we, James? Uh, this is like the most. No. So, like, could There's you imagine? Say, so, any any like two that. match, <laughs> any two fixture week that would be more boring to talk about than Reading and Millwall. Well, throwing Ipswich the week before too. This, this <laughs> fucking month's dreadful. It's like fucking Groundhog Day on this podcast. All right, hold on. Stop. Stop. All right, let's be let's be clear. I'm gonna, I'm going to give you one one sentence update on these games. Reading will be miserable. They will bring <laughs> no one, and it'll be a dull game. Then we have to go to Millwall, which will be miserable. It'll be a dull game, and no one will be that interested. Right, let's finish that. Um, when Saturday comes, does anybody remember that from when they were a kid? In like the the paper, the magazine. Yeah, the magazine that you used to buy from the news agents, like GT News if you were growing up in Sheffield. But I guess Jeff probably had to send off like a postage version of it to, to get it across. Uh, it used across to have like a, it was like a um, like comic book feel to it, right? It was like it a, did. It was, it was the, a uh, the American it, it? term would be a zine, apostrophe yeah, like Z-I-N-E. A zine. Yeah. Perfect. Well, well, when Saturday comes, which now exists in digital form, like all, all good things from the 90s, has, uh, has released an article... Focus on Roland Nielsen, Sheffield Wednesday's Swedish cult hero. And there's a picture of him in the 1993 Sheffield Wednesday shirt with Sanderson on the front of it. There's actually a, um, a great series of photos of him in various Wednesday shirts from the mid-90s that are all excellent. So can we talk about that instead of the, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the aforementioned away games? Because Well, home and away games, because both of the opponents are boring and Roland Nielsen is everything. So somebody I noted uh, responded to the, the tweet of the article saying that he looked like Kevin Bacon. He does, in that first picture yeah. in the article. I can kind of see it, I guess, in the Sanderson kit. Yeah. He's suggesting that if there was ever a film made about Roland Nielsen's life, that Kevin Bacon would be chosen <laughs> to play. <laughs> yes. I mean, Kevin Bacon does some weird things, right? He's, he was in that weird... Um, he was in, like, a phone commercial in England for, like, 10 years, which was very weird when I went over to England, like, a few years ago, and saw him in a commercial for some, like, EE or something like that. Uh, why is WRC doing a, a feature on Roland Nielsen 25 years later? Why not? Well, that's a very good point. But I thought we, we have talk about. I feel like we don't talk about Roland Nielsen enough. <laughs> well, now's a good time to start because the the article starts, and I think it's beautiful as 
a tireless but classy operator, the right back mm. is still fondly remembered at Hillsborough as part of the side that reached an unlikely three cup finals in as many years. Now, the only part I find a bit irritating about that is the concluding element about the unlikely three cup finals, but everything else is absolutely true. That's why we should talk about Roland Nielsen. He is classy and tireless, which is everything that Reading and uh, Millwall are not. <laughs> well, they're quite tireless. <laughs> Keep popping up every now and again. They're tiring. <laughs> He looks like okay. you still do a job, too, if I'm honest. To be honest, Jeff, at this point, we could read the rest of the article and it would be better value than <laughs> previewing those games. And I'm going to leave it up to you as our, uh, as our chief kind of you know, facilitator and, uh, and organiser to determine which one we should do. How about we tweet it out and let our readers read it uh, and bask in the glory of it. Actually, it's a very well-written article um, from WSC and I will tweet out right now. So have a check it out on our Twitter feed. While you're doing that, Patty, can you also inform our listeners where the meetups are for these goddamn games on uh, Saturday and Tuesday? Um, I believe, oh god, I can't multitask. Uh, New Orleans meeting up for the Reading game at Finn McCall's. Jamie is actually back home, but Tim is doing it. Um, I will put it out there again and say, if someone gets touched with me, I'll put a New York Owls meetup on. If not, I'll probably stay at home with my puppy and clean up shit and piss. You're such, you're such a glory seeker. You only come out for the <laughs> Chelsea game and the FA Cup. And I was there last week with three people. Yeah. I, I don't take any shit from you guys. I haven't seen you for a long time. <laughs> um, anyway, New York House is there if you want me. Uh, New Orleans is there anyway, regardless. And um, that's it. I don't think there's anything happening on Millwall because it's a Tuesday afternoon and it's Millwall. Both reasonable stances to take. This has been episode 56 of the Owls Americast. You can find us on the internet at owlsamericas.com. Email the show at owlsamericas at gmail.com. Find and follow us on Twitter at owlsamericas. Our podcast intro and bumpers are by fellow Wednesdayites, Reverend and the Makers. Podcast is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbeam, and probably anywhere else you choose to download podcasts. There's no wrong way to listen to the show. Just do what feels right. Wherever you choose to consume Owls Americast, we ask that you rate and review the show as it helps more Wednesdayites find our ramblings. Speaking of ramblings, you can leave the show a voicemail on our Dazed and Mumbled line at 1-401-307-1867. International rates do apply, but you can dial it for free using Google Voice. James is on Twitter at Manhattan Owl. James, if you had to pick a classic Roland Nielsen look, which kit would you go with? Do you know what? I was just looking through the photos, Jeff, and um, it's not a popular opinion, but there's a picture of him uh, in kind of fat Roland Nielsen mode in 1997. It's the Coventry uh, City the, Co- the Coventry City shirt, and it, it, it doesn't look like Roly, so uh, so it wouldn't be that one. Uh, no, it would be uh, it would be uh, 1991 League Cup final Roland Nielsen. Um, or possibly... Uh, just... He's just beautiful in every Wednesday kit. I also forgive him the fact that he once hit the post with a back pass against Blackburn in the semi-final of the 1993 Coca-Cola Cup um, at home in the second leg, uh, which was also a wonderful kit. So, you know, Roland Nielsen, yes. It's much better than being in a hotel in New Jersey. Jeff, did you like um, did you like IFK Gothenburg before... Um... Well, during the Roland Nielsen during era. During the Roland well. Nielsen era, no. Do you want my IFK Gothenburg? Hang on. Well, let's get through the rest of the housekeeping and I'll do my IFK Gothenburg story at the end of it. Patty's on Twitter at Patty A. Jones or at New York Owls. Patty, um, did you in the uh, mid to late 90s ever consider going for the full uh, Roland Nielsen haircut? Um. You mean the mullet one from when yeah, was literally the days. mullet? Yes. No, I did not. Um, well, you said people. Some people may argue I did have a mullet at one point, but it was just long curly hair that I did not know how to style. So I had I had curly hair down to my shoulders for most of my life until I was like twenty four ish, uh, and now I do not. Um, so no, I did not consider mullets. Mullets are bad. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro, and here's my IFK Gothenburg story. So my Mets podcast has several, more than one, Swedish listeners who uh, tried to get me to support a Swedish soccer team. 
One of them is from Gothenburg, and he sent me a scarfing kit. And it was an easy to, uh, it was an easy adoption because obviously Roland Nielsen uh, and uh, uh, Alexanderson was there too. And he's actually the youth team coach now there as well, I think. Uh, Roland Nielsen, for people to keep track of, I think is the Sweden under-21 coach. Um, so I, I started supporting them in like 2014, 2015, around there. So it was not uh, directly related to Roland Nielsen at the time from his 80s uh, European Cup successes, Patty. Was not, I was not aware of those at the time. The, the, the kit, so the reason I asked that, because when we're looking at uh, pictures of Roland Nielsen earlier... It's a very James, nice kit. The Swedish kit is very nice. No, there was one with the the IFK Gothenburg with the two um, Adidas logos on the lapels. Yes, yeah. It's that's what, that one with the uh, with the supermarket logo on it. I can just see it says SKF on the left, and it says the badge at the bottom. It's like Adidas everywhere. It's blue and white stripes. It's, it is. They're a all blue white stripes. Kit. Yeah, they all look. They and no, Nielsen's nice hair kits, is yeah. pure luxury. Pure. Oh luxury yeah, it's, it's a luxury haircut. My favorite. Uh, <laughs> so the. <laughs> The Football Ramble podcast did a segment a couple of years ago where they would play a short interview clip of a football player talking, and you had to guess who it was just off like the you know five seconds of his interview or whatever. And they did roll in, I think they did roll in Nielsen for one of them, thinking that like nobody would figure out who it was. And they had like 150 Swedish people like write in and guess roll in Nielsen, so they had to like, read off every name. <laughs> <laughs> every Swedish name that had uh, written in, emailed in, and guessed Roland Nielsen successfully. It was very amusing. So that is my IFK Gothenburg slash Roland Nielsen. Sorry. That and with that, Jeff, you have a title for the podcast. Uh, it's going to be number one is Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>